What's up, guys? It's your host, Lopez, and I just want to say thank you for tuning into this episode today. If you're on Facebook and want to show some support with a like on the page, you can find it by going to facebook.com slash Behind Closed Doors Podcast or just searching Behind Closed Doors Podcast. You can also find it on Twitter at The BCD Podcast and on Instagram at The Behind Closed Doors Podcast. Last but not least, follow the podcast on Spotify by searching Behind Closed Doors in the podcast section to see all the amazing upcoming interviews I have to come. Every Sunday, I post a picture of a band with a hint of who my next guest is. Then on Tuesday, I post a brief clip from our video interview with a good highlight of our conversation we had. And lastly, post the new episode up on Spotify every Thursday morning. Now, on to the episode. So we've got Mr. Lizard Man himself. How are you doing today? I'm good. Yeah. I said where or how? <laughs> how? Yeah. Yeah. First, just want to say thanks for taking the time with talking to me today, buddy. No problem, man. My pleasure. Um, so we'll go ahead and start with uh, where are you from? Where did you grow up at? Well, I was born in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, but I don't actually remember living there because my dad got transferred. Then we were out in Colorado, which I have sort of vague memories of, but really I grew up in uh, upstate New York, basically Clinton County, right on the border of Quebec with Canada. I was there until uh, I was about 18. Then I did uh, my undergraduate college years in central New York, Uh, ended up in Albany, New York doing graduate work, which is about the time that I quit school, decided to pursue being a sideshow freak full time, and eventually ended up moving down to Texas, where I've lived in Austin ever since. Oh, so that's where you're living in is Austin, Texas? Yeah, yep. so now in Austin, Texas. How is the weather like there today? Is it kind of chilly or? Uh, I mean, look, for, for Austin, it's cold as fuck. But, yeah. <laughs> I, but in the relative scale of things, it was a little bit cool today. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what's cool temperatures compared to you? Because over here, it currently is, give me one second, 14 degrees outside. So 14 degrees, chilly. yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm used to, I'm used to those temperatures growing up, like say Clinton County, New York, like that, like I'm used to negative. That's that, that was a normal thing for me, you know, for, you know, basically the first half of my life now, but yeah, I had enough of that winter. I had enough of that garbage, you know, uh, one of the things, this is something that, you know, it's my old man cred sort of thing is, uh, when I was a kid, it's absolutely 100% true. We had to go down and shovel the snow off of grandma's roof. No kidding. No, so much that there would be snow drifts up onto the roof and you could walk up the snow drift with a shovel <laughs> and you shoveled the snow off the roof because if you didn't, it would build up too much weight for the roof to actually hold and cause damage. <laughs> so after big snowstorms, you would, we would get in the car, you know, and dad would take us down. We lived about a mile away, which interestingly, on one side of the road, I lived on rural state route 11, 
on one side of the road, there was no building. It was us. And then for a mile, nothing but cow, empty cow pastures. And then my grandparents' house. But so we, we sometimes cross-country ski down to grandma and grandpa. <laughs> that is funny. You So you have siblings, you said? I've got one younger sister. Okay. Yeah. And is she still living over there in Canada? or? Uh, no, she's, she's in Montana. Montana. Okay. Yep. So yeah, mom and dad have become snowbirds, you know, so they, they spend it right now. They're in Florida, but they're New Yorkers who winter in Florida. And then I ended up in Texas and sister ended up in Montana. I'm, I'm sure you're loving that warm weather over there compared to what it is here. Oh, dude, I have, I, the thing is, and uh, it's one of those things where somebody, if anybody's ever dumb enough in my presence to, to talk shit about climate change or whatever, I'm like, dude, not, not just in my lifetime, just in the 21 years that I've lived in Austin, I've watched this go from like, yeah, I can go back to my old photos, like January, 1999, 2000, like <laughs> running around in short state top, like going, woohoo, fuck you guys who are still in New York. It's so warm down here, whatever, you know? And then gradually by like 2005, I'm like, well, we had like a week of winter. It got kind of cold here. And now I'm like, no, we legitimately have a month of fucking winter where it's goddamn cold. <laughs> my heating bill tells you, man. Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm sure it's not. It's it's better than getting that negative degree weather, though, ain't it? Oh yeah, it's it's a huge difference. And I'm like, I mean, we've had there's it's legitimately snowed, like you know, little dusting, but like actual snow on the ground, three times in the last twenty years that I've been here. I said it before as a joke, but I think I'll stick to it. Is that if I ever have to shovel snow here, we're moving again. Uh, it's time <laughs> to go further south. What what kind of things are you into hobby wise? Uh, you know, I don't have a great deal of, of hobbies. I've probably picked up more uh, during the pandemic than I had be beforehand because there's something you do. You know, normally I don't have a hobby because I just occupy myself with what I do with right. touring and performing. It's a 365 day a year, you know, thing thing for me anytime, anywhere, any place. Uh, without that, I mean, that said, even before though, my biggest thing is probably video games. I've been, a, you know, all of my life I've played video games. I'm one of those guys, if we go to a bar and there's a pinball machine, a Galaga machine, I got to play a game, right? You know, I got to get a beer and I got to play a game. <laughs> <laughs> what? So like video games, what type of video games are you into? Uh, yeah, I, I play across the board and I go through phases. I think like anybody else who's, you know, who I think would be able to identify themselves as a gamer who games a lot. And, you know, you, sometimes you're on a, a shooter binge, but then, yep. you know, you get a strategy Radio. For me, a lot of it depends. I've noticed as I've gotten, uh, you know, older, like I said, I've been gave you since a, uh, I can't remember the name of the system anymore, but it was a like kind of like ColecoVision because it came packaged with a light gun, but it wasn't ColecoVision. It was one of their competitors. And I remember we had that when I was a little kid, you know, like early eighties and, you know, since then, but um, I'd say you know, I've, I've almost always got a shooter going. And I like to have a strategy game going, but I was saying um, by getting older, like content matters to me a lot more. Like when I was a kid, I like, I'll play anything. Yeah. You know, and it didn't matter. It could have the shittiest story, the worst, you know, everything. Yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. I'm playing a game, right? Now, you know, I'm 48 years old. And I've been playing video games for over 30 years. I've kind of like a bad story will ruin shit for me now. Absolutely. Like if I, if I don't like, or, you know, really bad anime before as a kid, like, you know, fighting game, you know, whatever, oh, the animation isn't good or it's not that smooth or who cares? Let's just play the game. And right. I'm like, yeah, because I know anytime that's there's, there's so many options now. 
right? It's a, we benefit, you know, there was a time I remember the kids like you're waiting for new video games to come out. Right. As like, just remember the old Atari with the cards, like you look at the games that come out and it'd be garbage, garbage, garbage. Like, oh boy. Oh, yeah. A couple of classics come out like that. But yeah, you'd play a shitty game because you know, you'd already played the hell out of everything good. Right. right. Well, now I, I give a game one day. If after playing it for one a few hours in one day, if it hasn't hooked me, I'm on to the next one because I'll never catch up with all the games I have. My gaming backlog goes back systems. There are games I'm never going to play because I didn't get around to them on the PS2. <laughs> right. so I'm like, oh, yes, I'm never playing that. <laughs> Did you ever get into the Far Cry games before? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed. I really enjoyed the the early Far Cry. Had me, and I mean, for me that 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 game was a. I think it represents a really important milestone, even though other games had kind of pulled it off. Technically it was the first big title who yeah. did it in a big package where the whole, if you can see it, you can go there. Exactly. The map, the map was real. No painted backdrops, none of that. Now, sure. Hardly any of the buildings could be gotten inside of, right? There's no, no idea, but it was just massive. And like to be able to stand on one mountaintop on part of the Island be like, I'm going to hang glide to that over there. And you, know, you can do it. That was an amazing experience. That was, as a, again, as somebody who's played video games and loves to, that's how they like to relax and enjoy themselves. That's a moment you've been waiting for, for a long time. That's a milestone. For sure. So you are known as worldwide as the lizard man. At what age did you get your first tattoo and what was it? Well, this is my first tattoo <laughs> and I started it in 1994. It was, uh, took me a, a long time for the longest time. I couldn't actually remember when I got my first tattoo because, uh, if I've ever had a failing as a, as an artist or as a performance artist is most of my professors in school would, would tell you it's that I don't do good documentation, right? I would come up with ideas that were a lot of fun. I would go out and do, you know, crazy stuff, you know, actions and performances across campus and, you know, these things. But, and afterwards, they'd be like, do you get any pictures? And you're like, oh, I got a, I got like one picture and I got this. And then, like, did you save any of the stuff that you use? Oh, no, I just left it there after I was done. And, you know, so just absolutely no documentation. Nothing. And then they'd be like, well, when did you do that? And I was like, oh, it was this. Oh, geez, when was that one? And, you know, you know you know, years later, I try to talk about like what I did as a student artist. Sometimes it'll come up like in an interview or something. And uh, they're like, wow, I mean, I just I wish I had just written it down, taken some goddamn notes. It's like <laughs> I could yell at younger me. That would be what it would be like. Get a fucking pencil, get a fucking piece of paper, make some notes. You're going to want to remember this shit later on. Right. But uh, I was able to, to narrow down from a few old photos and other people that were around that it was January of 1994 when I went in and got my, had my first tattoo session, which was part of the design for my back. And then, um, you know, it, uh, it kind of moved slowly in the beginning, but by 19, in January of 1999, I had intentionally left three empty scales on my right leg. And so we did it live on stage at the uh, Star of Texas Tattoo Revival Had my current artist, Ryan Phillips, fill those last three scales in and complete my tattoo. 25 years later to the month and um at what at what time did you decide to go with like the body mods when did that start to come into play i i had an idea uh that when i was about 18 as a freshman in college 
and the idea was to see um and i'm at that time and i mean still today but at that time i was very into 70s performance artists people like carolee sneeman vito Aconci, uh chris burden uh but also some older um people sort of like joseph boys who was an early dadaist performance artist uh and so that, their style and ideas were going through my head and something that i've got gotten into my head before was this doing uh almost an alien character or just different sort of things basically playing with the idea of what it was to be human like to get people to actually do a double take to be like what is that you know and um <clears throat> i said early on it was very conceptual uh and it was more ideas for costumes and these sorts of things well as a freshman in college i really sort of discovered tattooing as an art form and i knew what tattoos were but i had never thought of them as art right my brain had not made that that jump and this is, you know, a lot of people hadn't. I mean, still today, there are people who do not accept that, who do not view tattoos yeah. as art. But in 1989, 1990, much more common for people to just overlook it as an art form. Well, I discovered Japanese tattooing from a book I found in the college library as a freshman. And it just really made me rethink tattoos. And it got me thinking about full body designs and concepts. And that led me to... Uh, something, an element of, I was already interested in circuses and sideshow, but I didn't really think about the tattooed man attractions. This got me thinking about the tattooed man attractions and learning more about some of the different historical figures. Uh, going back to Prince Constantine, you sort of the archetype of the modern tattooed man as an attraction with his story of being shipwrecked and forcibly tattooed. But I mean, he was one of the, he's one of the first big tattooed attractions, but he also, he went full line, you know, entire body and face. There was a long period of time where tattooed attractions didn't have their faces tattooed because people weren't even even somebody who was going to work as a sideshow freak wasn't going to take that kind of risk you know they're, they're like yeah i'll get my whole body tattooed my face what are you crazy yeah. <laughs> you know? like, meanwhile like dude you work in a circus <laughs> you're tattooing your whole body for a job like why stop in the face and, but that's why the people who were willing to go the face that that's why that's always a milestone right it almost doesn't matter like you you could have this wildly controversial but highly technical artistically done piece you could have like, the equivalent of a maplethorpe exhibit tattooed over your body right but if you didn't have your face tattooed people be like well he didn't have his face tattooed right? right but the other side of that is don't like it's and this happened for me michael wilson who was a uh, rest in peace the tattooed man at coney island one of their, their modern day uh tattooed man in the 80s and into the 90s until he passed away um, and I remember the first time I got to meet and talk to Dick Ziggin, who's been running the site there forever because he was good friends with Mike. And I, I wanted to know more about Mike because what I knew about him, I had really liked. He'd been a, a late influence, but a very strong and positive influence on some of my ideas about being a tattooed performer. And I, one of the things I asked Dick, though, I was like, Dick, I was like, what did Mike have on his body? Because that's the thing, right? You get your face tattooed. Everybody, there's a million pictures of your face. Everybody and everybody knows the rest of your body is tattooed, but of what? I was like, I've never seen Mike's back. I was like, what was his back piece? And I and I eventually found a picture of him without a shirt on to see his chest. He has the he had a magnificent chest piece. He had great work done on his sleeves. All this nobody notices, nobody cares. I mean, and to to even more prove that point, when I first went out as a tattooed performer. I got my face tattooed, right? I had huge parts of my body that still needed to be filled in, outlined, just huge parts. Of, nobody cared, right? And nobody remembers that. They remember my face was tattooed, so I was completely tattooed. 
because people will be, uh, be like, I'll show an old picture of myself being like, hey, remember before I got this part filled in? And people would be like, oh, yeah, I remember it. I met you after that. Like, no, no, you met me years before that. Your memory is just, oh, he was all done because my yeah. face was all done. <laughs> Did you have any uh, hesitation or nervousness at all along your journey of all the modifications and tattoos? I mean, I was I put a lot of consideration into the uh, just doing this. So this place, like I, I was 18. I had this idea and I really thought about it. And it's something I came back to a lot. Um, and I would do designs. I would think about it. It's like, well, you know, I, I want to transform my body and I would do it permanently like an old sideshow freak attraction. And I was like, well, what are my options? You know, I would, I would make sketches. I would make notes, just uh, all different sorts of things. And I had different ideas. Like at one point I was thinking about skulls and skeletons and, and I thought about uh, polka dots, <laughs> just a weird shit, right? Just anything. But I, if I had an idea, I was students like write it down make a note let's see where this see where it goes see if i like it well eventually the one that all that sort of tied everything together especially when i started learning more about what could be done started thinking about filed teeth and mm -hmm. uh split tongues and uh, being able you know that was something you know that i'm very proud of sort of legacy wise is you know, i kind of basically started the split tongues as a modification as a regular one uh as the early it helped develop the surgery uh, and then was hosting people at my apartment that would come through to get to see the doctor that did mine. And then, you know, being sort of the face of it, being on Ripley. If you, for the majority of people in the world, if they know a split, that split tongues even exist, it's because they saw me on TV at some point, because there was a while there in the late nineties, early two thousands, where try as hard as you can, you weren't going to get away from me. I was on every fucking channel. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Red Ripley's Believe It or Not, Guinness World Records, TLC, Discovery, National Geographic. I did all the talk shows. Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, for whatever, better or worse, it was definitely better for me. It was a great boon for me as my career and everything else. But it also just made me sort of become the face of it to the point where, you know, I know people who were like, yeah, I got my tongue split and show, they'll be like, I showed it to my old friend, so-and-so. And their immediate reaction was, oh, like that lizard guy on TV. And then they'd be like, yeah, I know him. <laughs> Let's see the split tongue. What was the, pro what was the process with that? How did that go about? So my tongue, it was the first surgical tongue splitting in history. And it was done with a argon biopsy laser. So I was given a shot of lidocaine just to help me basically hold still. And it's about all it did. And then the laser was used to just literally burn right through, burn it right down in half. Then the mucosa, which is the outer tubing that sort of, there's like the layers of muscle of the tongue. And then there's a sheath kind of around it. That's a, the mucosa, the surface of your tongue. And we pinched it together. I say we, the dental, dental surgeon, oral surgeon, uh, pinched it together and sutured it up along the interior to help prevent regrowth. Now that ended up being one of the most important aspects of it because people who have used other and different methods to split their tongues have found that they get the regrowth really severely. Like I've actually seen uh, tongues that were scalpeled into a split grow back together absolutely completely to the point where you wouldn't even know that it had been split before. Um, so that suturing turned out to be really important and something that even uh, he had to develop over the course of procedures. Uh, he did two different procedures on mine. The first one was just hey, it's an experiment. Let's see what happens. Let's see if it works. <laughs> and it did. The second one was to take it back uh, further. And uh, and he did, uh, let's see, yeah, so mine twice. Uh, Shannon Lerat of BME, who's uh, a friend of mine who passed away, 
came down. This is actually how Shane and I first really, uh, you know, got to know each other. He actually came down and stayed with my house and I introduced him to the doctor and then the doctor split his tongue. Uh, had a woman named Essie who came up from New York. I think she, uh, he worked on hers either three or four times because she wanted to go as deep as she could. Um, I believe he actually even tried removing a bit of the basal tissue to mm. give her an extra deep split. Jeez. So when you do tours and shows and whatnot, what's that all about? What do you like? What's a, what's a show for you from start to finish? I am a, a I'm a sideshow modern day sideshow performer. I perform in a number of different styles. I also do stand up. I've done spoken word before. Uh, I've even done traditional theater. <laughs> so, uh, but when I want to, if you're coming to see me, the lizard man perform, whether it's in a bar, in a theater, at a street uh, performance festival, or a, on a street corner, or wherever it may be, it tends to be comedy sideshow. So, you know, especially back when I was first getting started out, when there were a lot fewer people uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was only really one way that sideshow was done. And it was the more traditional way. It tended to be a lot of gross stuff or, you know, kind of corny, hacky jokes, things like that. And I mean, I can work in that style. I've done it several times. Somebody wants to have a historically accurate sideshow performance. I can do that. I know that stuff. But for myself, and it's the other thing is like, I'm just naturally not a serious guy. I can't be like, ooh, I'm scary. Ah, this is so dangerous. Right. Like, even there, I, I can't do it without it being played. Without being like, obviously fucking around, right? And so that's my character on on stage is, is who I am off stage. It's it's natural for me. Otherwise, I can't. I'm not good at faking it, right? So uh, I've I've been in shows where I've had to fake it and try and be mean and scary, and I don't think I did as good a job as I do when I'm trying to be funny. And I think it's more of a challenge too. It's like, look, it's easy to be scary when you're waving a sword around and shoving it down your throat or to be gross when you're pumping a, when you've got a stomach pump tube shoved up your nose down into your stomach and you're pumping your stomach. It's easy to make people scream and yell at that, but can you make <laughs> them laugh? Can you make them smile? So I always try to do, I try to do traditional and, and sideshow stunts that I've invented, but do them in ways that make people laugh and cheer and smile instead of cringe and shudder. And right. get so if you're seeing me, you're going to see stuff like sword swallowing, uh, beds and nails, straight jacket escapes, pierced weightlifting, but done with comedy, often kind of slapsticky uh, three stooges, Marx brothers. Those are big influences for me. I, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've got a buddy of mine who's been touring with me now doing shows with me for Jeez, I think this is going to be like 13 years now. Joel Keith, who's an amazing uh, comic, very gifted guy. And it's, yeah, we both kind of like that. We just get out there and get silly and get fun. And we will do whatever goofy, dumb, dangerous thing it takes to make you smile and cheer. So surely people notice you right away in public when you go out. What is that typically, uh, typically like for you? Do people like run up and ask for pictures or? You know, so, sometimes that, that, has happened actually quite a bit. It usually corresponds to whether or not there's been a rerun or a new TV appearance out or something like that right. it'll always make it go up a little bit or, you know, it depends on where I am. Like if I'm in a city that has a Ripley's in it because there's a statue of me at every Ripley's, then the people that live in cities with Ripley's tend to be more likely to know me because they'll see my face on a billboard or an advertisement for the museum in town. You know? So then if I'm actually there, people will be like, Oh, Oh geez, it's you. You're here. You're right. You know? Um, but the, the general knows, like, like, here's like, I know that people stare at me all the time. I know that whenever I you know, go through a public space, 
that all attention draws towards me, that all focus comes towards me. It's a blessing for what I do, right? It makes it really easy for me to do street shows and gather crowds, right? It's, yeah. But it also, it, it can be annoying because I like, I have to, I don't have to, but I find it a lot easier sometimes to avoid things or avoid like crowded places. So uh, a few years ago when I was, I lived in London for a couple of months doing this run of shows in a theater on the, the bank of the Thames. So to get to work, I had this lovely, I love walking, right? I like being outside. I love taking a walk. I had this beautiful walk from the apartment I was staying at to our theater. But it went through a couple of very big tourist spots, right? It went mm. right past, the, it went right over the bridge. It went <laughs> you know, right by Trafalgar Square. You know, it's all these areas with all these big tourist spots. So I learned to be on the other side of the street those spots <laughs> otherwise right i'd never get through there i'd get, I'd get a crowd like that and i know this so like i people often like if they hang out with me or like other performers like especially performers who work in costume where like if they're not made up for the show people don't recognize them yeah they 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 don't kind of get what it's like to be 100 on all the time like i am like because i'm like yeah if i go down to the corner store to buy a beer you know or down to the hotel lobby right I'm still lizard man. Lizard man right. is still a thing that's happening right now, whether a lizard man wants it or not. So like I said, I learned to be on the other side of the streets. People walk, they're like, why do you leave so early? I'm like, because if I get stopped, I don't want to be a dick to the bread. Be like, sorry, fuck you. I'm trying to get somewhere on time. Right. 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 No, I'm like, yeah, come on. Let's, can we do this fast? Cause I got to get going. Cool. They do it. Let's walk. <laughs> right. I do that all the time. I make people take, I make people walk with me to take selfies and be like, Hey, come take a picture with me. And I'll be like, Hey, come over here. Cause I'm going the other way. <laughs> right. And then, I mean, I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm yeah. Cause it's very often, I'm not trying to be a dick, but I've literally had it happen that it's taken me an extra half an hour or more to get a very short distance. And I'm not, I, I feel like an asshole for complaining, right? It's like, Ooh, woe is me. The price of success. Oh no. Right? Yeah. You've got stuff I'm, to do too, you know? Um, yeah, but I'm really fucking lucky that people think I'm cool enough that they want to have a picture with me, right? That, that people think I, I genuinely really do appreciate that, but it can be a major pain in the ass. Like, yeah. and, and even in an airport, right? Like that's the other thing. So like, I have accident. I have made people miss their flights. <laughs> I make I make my flights, but I made and I didn't do it on purpose, right? I I say I made them, but what happens is in an airport because some people when they see me, their brains explode so much because I am so far out of their expectations. Even if they've seen me on TV, I've had people. It's usually people that know I exist that freak out the most because sure they know I exist, and but they never expect to run into me, right? right? And then where do you run into me? Well, I travel up until the pandemic, right? I'm traveling year round. I'm, I'm flying over a hundred thousand miles a year. I'm in airports all the time. So people in airports, like that, that's where people will see me at a gate or somewhere, run over and take a photo. Yeah, take a photo. They're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool. And if I'm, in, I'm, I'm at an airport gate, right? So now I know I have the time. I'm right there. I'm not yeah. going to miss my flight. I don't give a shit. So I'm like, hey, where are you going? I'm chatting. And it happened to this dude. He stopped and he chatted. He's a really nice guy. I mean, I feel like but he was like, I was like, so where are you going? I'm like, yeah, when's your flight? And he's like, oh shit. Like, cause he just lost track of time because he, oh, green guy forgot the world existed. Right. And he goes running and I'm like, I hope <laughs> you make it dude. And I'm still, and I'm still waiting. Cause I had a long, okay, I think we got delayed or something, but I'm, like, I'm not going anywhere. Cause I'm at my gate. Fuck it. I'm here. The right. next place I go is on that plane. That's it. Right. <laughs> I'm not going to, 
I have, I have a thing about that. If I'm, if I'm compulsive about anything and I know that people who've had to travel with me would probably agree with this in a heartbeat. It's like, I would rather be there way fucking early, just sit on my ass and wait. Like I get, you know, I get that jittery shit. Like, like Hey, let's, let's, let's go to the gate. Hey, yeah. let's, let's be at the gate. can we just be at the gate? You know? <laughs> and, uh, Oh shit. My computer just did something weird. <laughs> The the voice recognition on my laptop just tried to popped up. I said the wrong thing, but yeah. Anyway, I I have to be there right and be sitting there like yeah, come on, come on. And it, and he ran he ran off. He came walking back and I was still there. And I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry you missed your flight. And he's like, yeah, well, what are you gonna do? And he's you know they <laughs> he got rescheduled another one. But I'm just in the back of my mind, I'm like, dude, you're a story now for the rest of my life. I'm going to tell the story about how I made you miss your fucking flight. <laughs> you were talking to a fucking lizard dude. <laughs> What's the rudest encounter or the worst encounter with the, with somebody that you've had? Uh, I mean, there's the, I guess the, the worst encounters are, are the ones that aren't even really encounters, right? Because the, the, the ones that from a distance, somebody's just like, fuck you or, you know, whatever. And, you know, shit like that or like you look like shit or what the fuck's wrong with you like you know and it's not because and it's again i feel like weird about complaining because like that's as bad as it gets right that really is worse because if somebody's actually willing to engage and have a talk with you i'm like oh well okay i argued with them and that then i could be like well i tried to explain to them but they're still a closed-minded ignorant fuck so that's on them (laughs) i can write them off right you know or just i've had people you know, sort of make sort of vague threats or something like that. And, uh, people be like, I'm surprised you don't get punched in the face more. <laughs> Standing right here. Right. <laughs> like, what, where where do you want to go from there? Huh? Right. <laughs> like, Get beat how, up by the lizard, man. <laughs> like, it's, well, it's one of those things where I'm always like, like I, I do not profess to be a tough guy in any way, shape, or form, but there is a certain amount of truth to, motherfucker, look what I did to myself. <laughs> you really think I've got an ounce of fucking mercy in me for your dumb ass? Fuck off. You know? Exactly. <laughs> What's some of the major acts or associations that you've done in the past? I know that you said that you've been in Ripley's and uh, Guinness World Record. Did you do any? Um, did you do any association with like Venice Beach Freak Show and any stuff like that? I I did not do. I've never worked with the Venice Beach Freak Show. I know a number of the people that were performers on there. And it's uh, basically behind the scenes stuff that I know. Like uh, there's, there's kind of a reason that a lot of them laugh. There's a lot of unhappiness and it's uh, um, my thing is I, I, I have a sort of thing where, yeah, I'll work with anyone. My, my, my standard of, or sort of my bar of what I want before I would, I'm willing to associate with them is basically, you know, have your shit together. Like I don't want to have a negative association with it. Right. So it's like, and people be like, there's two sides to every story. I don't want to hear either one. If, if there's shit talking going on and you are one of the, the and you are party to the, the shit talking, like, that tells me that somewhere something is wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's you, that, that, but I don't need to be involved in that. <laughs> you know, I don't need to be there. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's about as much as I want to say about the Menifee Speaks. So it's, uh, Yeah. But some of the people who came out of there, some of their performers, excellent, wonderful people, you know, but glad to know them. Glad they got that opportunity. And that's what all those shows are. I mean, it's an opportunity. I had mine, like we said, Ripley's and, and Guinness and uh, National Geographic and 
sort of different ones like that. Um, in terms of like other inside shows and circuses, it's always been, it was always a dream of mine. And since it's become a reality, it's always been an honor. Anytime I've been welcome to Coney Island, uh, I've been a guest performer there many, many times at sideshows by the seashore. Uh, Todd Robbins, who was part of the Coney Island uh, sideshow, is still part of Monday Night Magic and uh, just a you know old school, you know, well-respected older figure um, out of New York has had me on a couple of the different shows he's done, like uh, Carnival Knowledge. Uh, that's like I said, it's a great honor. Um, I've worked with uh, the Brothers Grimm show back in the day. Uh, basically went on to become Hells of Poppin', done a couple of tours of them. Of course, I was a touring member for uh, the Jim Rose Circus when Enigma and Lifto left. I kind of came in and took the, took over both their places in terms of the acts that they were doing. Also brought back some of the acts that Torture King used to do before he had left the circus. Um, getting to tour with him, toured with Torture King for Brothers Grimm and for Hells of Poppin'. Um, he's an incredible performer, great person to work with. Uh, the Space Cowboy in Australia, worked with him on uh, Deja Voodoo and Sideshow Wonderland, uh, a couple of his shows and some other projects. It's actually uh, one of his projects that was the one I was working on in London when I was talking about the stories about walking mm -hmm. around the city and avoiding the crowds. I was there thanks to him. Uh, since he and I have worked together since 2012, he brought me down for the Adelaide Fringe where he's uh, always had a show. And it's just been an amazing time. Really opened up a new world of performing for me. Australia was a, a revitalization. I was getting a little burned out of, uh, I mean, look, again, you, you don't want to complain when you're having fun, but at a certain point, you know, another dive bar, another, you know, ride, bus <laughs> yeah. ride around, it, it, it can start to wear on you when it starts pushing 20 years. And, uh, you know, it was very nice to get down there and get to a, a fringe festival and see that world and learn about it and become part of it. Uh, and uh, to do sideshow in a completely different culture and different part of the world, as Australia gave me a whole new sort of audience to to think about and to work with. Seems like you've done a lot of traveling then with everything. I've uh, basically been everywhere and performed everywhere except Antarctica. And uh, you know, once penguins get money and buy tickets, we'll do a show for them. <laughs> right. Um, so you do. I know that you do body suspension. What get you into doing that? And what's what's the feeling that you get from that? I met uh, I met the guys from TSD Traumatic Stress Discipline, uh, Alec, Alan Faulkner. You know the uh, the father, or I guess we're calling him the grandfather of modern suspension now, since we're getting a little older. But uh, I met Alan, and uh, let's see who else was on that trip. Uh, Alan was there. Brian, I think Oliver made that trip. Uh, Sean McManus, I think was there. Uh, that Oliver that I mentioned would have been Oliver Gilson. If people are familiar with Gilson hooks and what they are, that's mm -hmm. that. I'm talking about the guy that made it. He was part of TSD and part of the show that we did for the Night of a Thousand Scars, which was a premiere event for Dee Snyder's movie Strangeland at Webster Hall in New York City. Okay. Put on by Keith Alexander, who's, uh, again, rest in peace, uh, uh, a piercer who came from the gauntlet piercing and had his own in Brooklyn. He was Dee Snyder. He was Dee Snyder's tour guitarist in Sick Motherfuckers. And also the D's uh, consultant for body piercing and body modification in the Strangeland movie. And uh, Keith helped put together a lot of the entertainment for the premiere event at Webster Hall, Night of a Thousand Scars. Part of that was having TSD come up and do a suspension. This event, part of it was having uh, hiring me to do fire breathing outside the venue and a fire performance inside on the upstairs stage. And then some side, some other side just stunts. I think it had better nails, broken glass, human blockhead, 
Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I probably did some body sewing on myself. I was doing that a lot back then, uh, all that in the downstairs stage. So that's where TSD and I met. And so I was there with my old stage assistant and uh, the guy, Alan, and the rest of the guys were there early because we had the acts that involved body fluids and danger and all that and sort of things that people didn't know what to think about didn't understand what we were going to do and i was like and they're like so you're going to take that sword and shove it down your throat i'm like yeah exactly like literally that there's not a trick it's not a, yeah yeah exactly it's a so that's actual fire you it could burn i'm like yes that's why we have a fire extinguisher. it's the silly sort of safety meeting stuff but but I, I understand. I understood then, and I still understand now. And I think it's a point when people get stressed out about it. I understand as a performer, it can very often be irritating that somebody's like, "You're going to do what?" I'm like, exactly what I told you. Right. You know, <laughs> I, my, my breath. Listen to the words I say. They mean shit. Right? <laughs> but it's it's people don't. If you don't know, you don't understand. It's you. You are you're literally bringing a world in. Like, and people hear silly stuff. There's all these myths about, you know, pick any given act that you want. There's some sort of silly myth that came from it that was made up for a TV show or a movie that was popular. And, you know, now people just accept it as true and it's not. And you have to convince them like, no, that's not true. If it were, it wouldn't work. And that's why you don't have to worry about me burning down your stage or breaking your expensive prop or whatever right. the fuck it is. <laughs> uh, so we were there and with the lawyers and we were going back and forth with this and they our personality mix. We just, we really became friends that day. Like, and, and by the end of that night, like they watched my performance and they were really, they really liked the sideshow stuff. And again, it was very new for a lot of people back then. So they thought it was great. And for me, I knew of suspension, but I didn't really have an interest in it until I saw the way that TSD did it. And immediately it was like a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, that's it performance art like suspension as performance art like i had even seen stellar before then i was familiar with it, but his stuff as much as i liked it and i thought it was really powerful it didn't come across it didn't have the live kinetic effect that this did but that was kind of a happy accident because that was the night that the spinning beam was invented like originally they'd been hanging from beams like that just as counterweight like a light seesawing well, this time they got it up. It was just off the ground enough. There's enough room that it could really get going and, and spin around. So that was a happy accident that happened that night. That was the birth of the spinning beam. And I happened to be there in the audience watching my new friends do it and just be like, holy shit. And within less than a year, I'm driving down to Texas in a warehouse in Dallas. And I'm on one of those things spinning around myself, just having a good sort of a you know an, an additional member or a sort of uh, i think alan referred to me as the tsd mascot at one point but yeah i started doing more and more shows and stuff with them so you know at the ball of wax in chicago in 99 yeah so uh, how nine of a thousand scars that was 98 um by and so and then the month after that i drove to oklahoma city where they were where tsd was doing a show this life cycle show and it was right into where my head was at at that point too. Like we had just lined up. We were a lot of the same thinking, Alan Faulkner, Ron Garza, just this very performance already conceptual stuff. They did this life cycles, which was a series of different suspensions, each one that represented a different stage of a person's life, you know, from birth to adolescence, right, to yeah. puberty, to middle age, to death. And uh, Alan did this 
great like spoken word piece uh, with a gun, like as if he's going to commit suicide as he's cutting one of his older implants out of his arm. No, this is 98. Most people don't even know that implants are a thing. He's had one in his arm long enough that he's cutting it out on stage with a scalpel, right? Popping it out you know, as it represents his ex, right? And I'm, I'm in the eyes. And when they needed extra time to fill between like changing over the sets, because we had a, uh, I forget what it was, probably Learning Channel or somebody like that. And they're filming it. We needed to fill time between. I was jumping up and throwing sideshow acts in between, just keeping the crowd revved up, you know, spinning a chair from my earlobes and shit. <laughs> um, so, like that. So, yeah, that's 98. Uh, ne- next month, by the next year, 99, I'm driving down and doing the ball of wax with them in Chicago. We're doing uh, a flesh hook pull where we're do- actually lifting a stage between our backs. We've got four people each pulling a different corner. And then somebody up on top of the stage and we're, we're the suspension for it, the hooks to our backs. Uh, I think it was, yeah. And then it's either mid 99 or maybe been a little bit later. I went down to the warehouse, uh, did my own suspension, my first suspension. And after that, it was, if there was a TSD event and it was, it was, well, who wants to suspend, who can suspend or who, or who fits for whatever. So I would do it. I'd be part of TSD shows. I'd often be at the shows, even if I wasn't suspending and probably doing sideshow stuff. Uh, additional entertainment. Uh, what, once, what's I mean, one of the what's one of the worst experience? Or let me rephrase that. What's any of the experiences that you've had that you would you would consider that went wrong? Like a, a uh, moment I, that went bad. I, I've never really had a, a suspension go wrong, and a lot of that I credit to the way that uh, Alan and, and TSD approach suspension because in the early days. There'd be people who'd be like, oh, yeah, man, I did a suspension. You're like, oh, yeah, how was it? Like, yeah, I was up for 90 seconds. Like, people would talk about how long they suspended for. And it was, you know, never more than a few minutes. And or you know, often not more than a few minutes. I mean, obviously, some people got on there fine. But and these were people that were trying it on their own or in other places. And it was always weird because I came into it, like, say, through TSD, through people where I was in such a good place mentally. I was so happy when I got up when I felt that feeling when my feet left the ground and I did that new experience of holy shit this is I've never felt like this before that, that rush I'm in a good place and I'm taking and then I'm hanging out and I've got good energy around me like they were you know Alan would consider a suspension a failure if the person didn't hang until they were bored right that was <laughs> that was the facilitating that was going on it was always really positive and I see it happen again like so I would see first timers get put up by TSD and have the time of their life and swing around for a half an hour or an hour or more and just be like, Oh, I can't wait to do this again when they get down. And then I you know, see people post videos of line online of them shaking as they go up and then be like, okay, okay. 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 Yeah. Never even getting their breathing. And, calm like, and then back down the ground, I'll be like, Oh my God, I feel bad that you had that bad experience. You did. You didn't need that. That didn't need to happen. Like, they must have just got really over nervous is what it sounds like and, then yeah and i mean and i but there's a way to, to and that's what i talk about the facilitation aspect like there's a you don't just put hooks in somebody and like proper piercing and rigging is 100 percent absolutely non-negotiably essential but it's not the whole thing you also need to be able to help this person with what is going to be even under the best circumstances, a traumatic fucking experience. <laughs> and that's what, that's the, the number one thing that pisses me off when I see things, when I see suspension go wrong, or in my opinion, suspension goes wrong is when people aren't doing that. When somebody, when somebody isn't doing that job, 
Now, if you can't, if you're a great piercer or a great rigger, and when you know that you're not a great facilitator, well, that's fine. Just step back and do it, but don't, but don't half-ass your way into doing it. For don't be like, oh, well, well no, somebody else needs to be here because I'm not good at that. Be like, I will make sure you, I'll make sure you don't fall. I will yeah. make, I will make sure your hooks are put in and taken out cleanly. But I will not get like, if that's not your strength, no problem. Thank you for donating your strength of rigging or piercing. But when you're doing that, make sure that other person is there, right? You don't suspend somebody unless you've got those like three things, basically, right? Proper rigging, proper piercing and aftercare, and proper care of the suspendee, someone who's watching them. Like Now, one person can't, I know lots of people who are just incredible at doing all three roles, right? But that ain't everybody. Exactly. The one that breaks down the most in, in my experience, my observation is the who's watching their mental state, who's keeping them where they need to be. If they're all worked up and they're all hooked up and you're ready to pull them up and they're all worked up. No, stop. Yeah. It's it's like, what, uh, whose time are we on? Right. Who's fucking caught is, is, are we getting evicted? Uh, Please. (laughs) Right. Is there a reason you're in a fucking rush? Take 10 deep breaths and think about it for a second. You yeah, know? exactly. Because once you go up, like you said, those, that's when those people tend to really freak out because it's like, oh, my God, I, I didn't want to. I, I was second guessing, second guessing it before I went up and now I'm already up and it's too late. Now I'm freaked out and I'm in panic mode. And that's when the things adrenaline really start to in, like, that's, yeah. that's, when, that's when you're going to pass out. <laughs> exactly. You're going to hold their breath and they're going to pass out. What's one major conflict or failure that you faced and how did you overcome that in your whole career of being a sideshow? I mean, it's, I think, I think it's more that there, I don't know that there's been a a major failure. Like I've been pretty lucky at that. Yeah. There's setbacks, there's highs and and lows like that, but it's, I don't feel like anything's ever failed. Like I've had some, there've been show ideas. There've definitely been like ideas, you know, or like jokes or stunt ideas where afterwards be like, Oh yeah, that was dumb. Oh, nobody (laughs) thought that that was funny. Oh shit. That was horrible. (laughs) You know, so there's plenty of this, but the thing about it is that that's the nature of the business. It's uh, there's a thing in writing and I don't remember. I think there's somebody who sees this will know because it's famous. I'm just an idiot who can't remember who's famous person. (laughs) This shit is, but there's like, they said people who don't write or yeah, people who don't write, think that ideas are precious. They think that, you know, oh, you got a great idea. You only get one great idea in a lifetime. Like, like people who actually like writers understand like, no, ideas are have to be a dime a dozen, right? If you were to go listen to like the, the writers of 30 Rock or The Simpsons or something like that, right? You would hear literally a hundred or more ideas for any given thing. Like there's something would be like Homer's shirt and there would be a list of ideas and it would yeah. go on forever. And every day somebody's adding to it. And every day somebody else is going like, oh, that one's really fucking bad. No fucking way. No fucking way. Right? <laughs> right. That's, that is the process. So it's, it's easy to write off your failures in, in performance or it, you, or you need to get to this point. I, I think to my head, I'm like, oh, there were times when I didn't do this. And it's, it was a, this was that maybe this is the conflict of the thing I had to get over the failure, getting over failure. That's what you have to do. Right. It's not a specific failure that does anything it's learning it's the failure that is the one you learn to get past because a lot of people like i said it, people don't like public speaking or so very often because when they were younger right they did it once and it didn't go well mm-hmm. and then they started avoiding it right so it's like all right they were in they were in the elementary school talent show play or whatever doing something They're like my mom made me play guitar when i was in third grade in the talent show and <laughs> everybody laughed at me so i don't get up on fucking stage anymore i don't do presentations if they were you know 
whatever it does, say, but it always starts somewhere and then it gets reinforced along the way, right? So what you've got to do to be a performer is you got to be like, well, that didn't work. Try something different. That didn't work, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, right? Don't do what you did that failed. No, just do something new. And you've got to understand that there's always something new. No matter how long you live, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many shows you do, you will never have done every possible thing. So just keep doing it. Now, when you do something and it works, yeah, keep do that over and over. You keep doing that. That's that. That's why people tour off one comedy album for twenty years. I mean, it's nice to have new ideas, but it's also nice to pay the rent. <laughs> right. <clears throat> what big plans do you have for the future once pandemic ends, like for COVID? Once that's all out of the way, what's your what's your goals for the new years? Well, yeah, I figured by the by the time we get through the pandemic and uh, the the nuclear winter is cleared, I think the next new goal will be to establish a base of survivors and to uh, slowly bring order back to Central Texas and rebuild society. Something along those lines, you know. <laughs> anything that involves giant murals of me being painted on blown up old buildings, so that the you know, like five hundred years from now, they they worship the weird reptilian cult. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> What advice would you give to somebody now if they were to come up to you and ask you for advice if they wanted to follow in your footsteps? Uh, I mean, if you want to follow my footsteps, what you really need is a time machine, right? And this is, I feel like this is the nature of advice. This is something I know that Doug Stanhope has said. I mean, other people have said it too, but he he really like nails it where he's like, advice is 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 worthless. Advice is fucking useless, right? Because the only thing that you're the only thing that you're qualified to advise anyone else on is what you've already done but you did it back then and this is now and even if back then was yesterday now it could be significantly different right so like shit i did to succeed in the 90s is horrible advice in 2021 <laughs> horrible fucking advice right and i'm talking like you know or anything that's pre-internet is pretty much like if you go back, like you can get books that like, there's a, a great book uh, 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 Martin Atkins um, called Tour Smart and Break the Band. Now, for a long time, this was the Bible. This was if you wanted to know how to get your band or your performance group out of the world, how to go on, how to really get a van, make your own T-shirts, go on tour, make money and do this shit. This was the Bible. This laid it out for you real straightforward and i've got friends that he actually they're in that book because they were interviewed for it old people that i've toured with old school tour guys and you go back and you look at their advice now and you're like no (laughs) is it like and it's just because shit really does change that fast like there was a time when get a cell phone on the road no horrible idea too expensive what the fuck's point who do you need to call you know just that's that's an easy example, but there's a there's more you know detailed or deeper stuff out there that's that's like that. So I mean, the the thing there's there's very few things that are timeless, and there, there's shit that you should already know, right? The only thing that you that I can do, the only thing that I can really do for somebody who's starting out to do, and I do I work with younger performers all the time. There's a a couple of performers I've been working with in Australia the last couple of years. They're just out of their teen. I think they're both. 20 now or 21, maybe 21 and 20. Um, but yeah, so uh, me being 48, that's insanely young, right? So I'm like, I I look at the world and I'm like, yeah, I don't know exactly how I would pull this off, right? Because when I started off, there was a lot less competition. Right. You got paid a lot more because of there was less competition, uh, but there was fewer opportunities. 
Um, you had to sort of, you had to kick down doors to conflict me a lot of places because people literally did not understand what it was. I'd be like, I do sideshow and it's comedy. They'd be like, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, you know, comedy magic, like the amazing Jonathan and Penn and Teller. They'd be like, yeah, I go, I do stuff like that, but it's sideshow instead of magic tricks. And they'd be like, oh, okay. So, but what's that mean? I go, it means it's real. So I'm putting a sword down my throat. I'm really pumping my stomach. And so, so like they, they didn't understand. And you would have to get in there and do a good job to ever have a chance to come back again. Right. And if you fucked up, you fucked it up for everybody. Right. So it was like, yeah, I mean, that I should say like, Hey, you're, some of you, you're welcome that I wasn't a dick 20 years ago. Cause I would have shut down the whole thing. That bar would have never let any of you guys in 10 years later. <laughs> right. You know, so there was there, the early conflict was, was that was getting people to understand and understanding how to advertise it, you know, to get the, to find the people. Cause you know, it's an easy thing, right? If you're into something, odds are other people are too. You just got to go find them. Now, it used to be really hard. The internet has made it a, a bit easier. Oh, yeah. Now, if you find out there's a few of them in your neighborhood, then you can actually bring something together, right? So that you, you you can do that. Um, it, I mean, it, yeah, it's, there's, where the, I, I, mean, I think we've wandered on, sorry about that. I'm not going to tell you, give Brandon background for advice. All I can do for advice is to confirm to you the things that really do work that seem like cliches, but people will be like, you know, hard work. Yeah. Hard work is good. It's work. It's, it's not enough. You, you can work yourself to death and not get shit. So like good luck is way more important, way more important than hard work. But if you're lucky, I mean, if you're, if you get lucky, what's going to happen is your luck is going to give you an opportunity exactly. that, your hard, that your hard work will now capitalize on, right? Right. If, it, if you're not going to work hard, if you're lucky enough to get the opportunity, it will be wasted. Very few people are so lucky that they get the opportunity and it works out for them, even though they didn't work hard at it, right? Those people, that's, those are your lottery ticket winners, right? Those are your, that's, those are the ones that are just like, yeah, man, I don't even usually play the lottery, but I bought one because my buddy did when we were getting gas in his truck and boom, here I am, won a billion dollars. Like that asshole only exists once, right? So it's like, yeah, it's like you, you can't bank on being that at that dude. You gotta be the you gotta be the guy who's like, Well, I was down at the bar having a beer, and this guy comes in bitching and moaning about how his <laughs> truck's been fucked up. He took it to the garage three times and those idiots couldn't fix it. And I heard him talking, I was like, Hey man, that sounds like what happened to my truck. And he took me out and he's like, man, if you could fix it right now, I'll give you hundred. He's like, all right, boom, I'll get my tools to come down here. Like, I actually, <laughs> that's, that's based on a true story. A buddy, buddy of mine who actually is a mechanic was, we were drinking at a happy hour and some guy came in and he was literally just, you know, he came in looking to small. He, he, he wanted to have a beer and talk to somebody, right? He needed to, to let off steam. And one of the things he talked about was his thing was all fucked up. And this guy that I know, was like, man, I, I think I know what's wrong with your truck. And I think I know why those guys couldn't find it. It's not that they're horrible, but it's like they're Jiffy Lube mechanics, right? They're not <laughs> like you, you got the wrong, you didn't get the guy there that really gives a shit about cars. You got the kid there. That's just trying to get a paycheck. He's, he's just hired. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And the guy was like, can you fix it? And he was like, yeah, I could fix it, but I have to get my tools. And the guy was like, and I mean, dude had the money. He like pulled out, filled it. he's like, I think it was like 200 bucks. He's like, I'll give you $200 right now to fix it. It's part of right there. And he, he was like, all right, I got to go get my, get my tools, come back and do it. And ran it. But he's like, yeah, you made a quick 200 bucks having a beer at happy hour. <laughs> <clears throat> so before we wrap this up, man, I want to end by saying thank you so much for talking with me again. 
And um, I know some of the stuff that you do in the sideshow, you know, like I've seen uh, pictures and videos where you put stuff through your septum, um, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Is there any way you would be able to do a quick stunt? Um, Let me see. There's a surprisingly enough in my uh, incredibly clean off. Let's see what's over here. Uh, It's a uh, green titanium nail from my friends at Anato Metal. Normally they make fine quality body jewelry, but on occasion they make a nice sideshow prop too. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Barry. He's the uh, founder and owner. He's an old friend of mine. And uh, I needed some uh, new blockhead nails once upon a time. And (laughs) he was like, well, tell me what the dimensions are. And I was like, all right. And uh, sent me a bunch of nails in the mail. Uh, for those of you who might not know, this is a, a variation on an old act called the Human Blockhead. It was given that name by Melvin Burkhardt. He didn't invent the stunt, but he gave it a whole new pitch, a whole new spiel. Basically, he wrote a whole new act for doing what I'm about to do, which is put a nail up my nose. And Melvin became famous as the Human Blockhead. So famous, as a matter of fact, that to this day, <laughs> Blockhead name is the name we use for this act inside the sideshow. <laughs> If somebody tells you that they're a blockhead, it means they shove something in their face via their nose. Traditionally, in Melvin's fashion, that would be hammering a nail in. He'd occasionally take a block, uh, uh, the word ice pick, ice pick, and he'd drive an ice pick in there. I'm I'm partial to forks. I don't see my fork over here right now. Oh wait, I have. uh, Yeah, I got this. Hang on. That's, you know, that, that, that'd be a more traditional version. This is uh, one I rigged up for a photo shoot a few years back. There's a little fork. <laughs> oh, my God. This is, this is the fork <laughs> you fork. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, man. What, how how was it the first time that you did anything like that? Uh, it's basically what you're seeing me do is uh, an exploration of the lower sinus cavity. So what I ended up doing, started doing, this, this is the way that you know most people learn about the blockhead is they'll see somebody do it like that. It may get explained on stage or it's the sort of thing you'll find if you look it up on Wikipedia. Is you, you have two passages. Once you go into the opening of your uh, your nasal passage right here. Now, as you go in, you can go up or you can go back. And going up, and neither way is good, right? Going up is very, very bad. That's uh, the same path that some versions of lobotomies could be done. Uh, and it doesn't go very far. I mean, it does, but you're not going to get very far up there. It's going to be a lot of resistance, a lot of pain. No, you around. If you actually go straight back, there's a narrow opening into your lower sinus cavity. And you can go all the way back to it's, uh, basically your brain pan, the bottom of your skull. If you go in there, you'll be right underneath your eye, basically that, that open space. It's, it can go all the way back to where it goes down the back of your throat. You know, if you have a cold and you snort, you go back yeah, down. Your throat. Yeah. Or like when we do mental floss, like a balloon or a condom, you snort up your nose down the back, that path. We'll go all the way back there. It gets, I can get almost to right about here. If you actually have had x-rays taken before, but it'll get right back to about the jaw point. And um, <clears throat> the real constricting point is though, you get this opening, there's the opening to your, uh, to your nasal passage here. And then, like I say, it narrows down. Now, I have a very big opening there because after 20 plus years of shoving stuff in there, I've actually <laughs> worn away the lining 
inside my nasal cavity. So it's not exactly something you do for fun or recreation. It's, <laughs> it's not really bad for you, but it's not good for you either. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's probably not killing me, but it's definitely not adding time to my life. <laughs> right. Well, like I said, man, I sure do appreciate you doing that and explaining more into depth with that. I definitely want to uh, schedule another, uh, I can't talk another interview. We can do a part two and get some more stuff going. That'd be fun. I appreciate it, buddy. I'll stay in contact. All right. All right. Cheers, man. Have a good one. You too.